everybody. It is then again at the Northeast Georgia History Center, your absolute 100% favorite history podcast. And today I have a great guest with me, one of my old teachers, one of my old mentors, Dr. Eugene Van Sickle from UNG. Tell us about yourself, Dr. Van Sickle. Thank you, Glenn. Um, I'm Gene Van Sickle, and um, my official title is the uh, Assistant Vice President for Strategic Student Success Initiatives uh, at the university, uh, but I'm also a history professor uh, on, on the faculty. You might be wondering what uh, Student Success Initiatives is all about, and the quick version of that is that I work uh, with faculty and across various units at the institution to uh, design and implement um, student success programming. I asked Dr. Van Sickle to come in and, and have a chat with me about who I think is one of America's most misunderstood, if he's even thought about, presidents, John Quincy Adams, sixth president of the United States, uh, a one-termer, but arguably one of the people who came into the presidency better prepared than any other human who's ever gone into the office. Would you say so? I think that's a fair assessment. And in terms of, you know, his life experience prior to the presidency, um, he was definitely well qualified. And uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find many other presidents that had the same level of experience and had accomplished as much as what he did prior to becoming president. And then more important, what he did after serving as president. He is a bit of an anomaly in that regard. Give us just a little bit about the, the experience and the qualifications you're talking about pre-presidency. So um, very early in the history of the United States, after we move into the constitutional period, he was selected to be a minister. And so Washington sent him to Europe as a minister. And so he did that for approximately six years, right about. And then he came back to the U.S. and uh, was elected for his first term as a senator. And so then he served in the Senate until he was then chosen by Madison to be a minister to Russia. And so he went off and did that. And then he returns again to the U.S. to serve in the, as a cabinet member for Monroe as Secretary of State, which is, I think, probably most historians would argue that's where he had the, the most significant impact on U.S. history was in that role. And then after the presidency, he served, uh, what was it? It was, forget now exactly, I think it was nine terms in the House. So from, yeah, nine terms, so 1830 to 1848. So he's a senator, several, a couple, three-time minister to a foreign country. Then mm -hmm. he's vice president, he's president, and then he comes back and he's in the House of Representatives. All he needs to be is a Supreme Court justice for the trifecta. Well, he argued some cases in front of the court. Uh, the most famous, of course, was the homicide. Tell us just a little bit about that. There, there's a bit of, I think, argument about his exact position when it came to slavery. Um, generally speaking, he was anti-slavery, not always necessarily that forceful about it. Um, he, he did protest quite vociferously Hammond's gag rule that was put in place in 1836, and he was instrumental in getting that repealed. But then uh, again, the, the most famous instance was this ship, the Amistad, which was a mutiny against Spanish slavers. And so he argued uh, on behalf of those slaves in U.S. court. You can go into a couple of more examples because I know there are some. He has very strong personal feelings about 
slavery, about U.S. sovereignty, about the separation of powers. But when it comes to getting things done in government, he's willing to work with people. He's willing to compromise for what he sees as the best way to get things done. Uh, given his history, do you consider that a personal compromise or do you think that makes part of his genius so genius? Well, to some extent, I mean, that's partly partly where he reflects his father, right? Uh, neither one of these um, men, especially as president, were, I guess, what you would call politically pragmatic. <laughs> they tended to ignore the politics that was necessary to be successful sometimes. But yes, when it came to actually achieving goals and getting work done, an example here would be, uh, he endorsed Henry Clay's American system as, as a, an example, right? Which is about right, uh, using federal resources to invest uh, in infrastructure, right, for the economy, those kinds of things. Uh, he was very much interested in supporting scientific research and, and those kinds of things. Y'all have to remember this, you know, using federal funds today for national infrastructure is just a foregone conclusion, but we're talking about the days when this was first being decided and he was in favor of that. Yes, um, I, I, tend, I sometimes joke about this, and maybe I've even done it with you uh, in, in classes, but with, with students. Had the term existed, John Quincy Adams probably would have been branded a socialist. Right, right. <laughs> right because he believed in, in uh, like we said, using national funds to improve the quality of life for everyone across the country by expanding commerce and making things available, and even a little bit of uh, unsanctioned expansion southwards. Yes, and we can. That's one of my favorite parts uh, of his record. Interestingly, to me, though, as president, when he promotes those kinds of things, I mean, he wanted to use federal funds to create a national university. That's one of the reasons he didn't get reelected. Most Americans, including his right successor Jackson, were absolutely opposed to that kind of use of federal funds. But it's interesting when he makes an you know an argument for those things. The idea of a national university, I mean, we don't think too much about that now. I mean, the Department of Education funds universities uh, all across this country. And, and he was one of the first advocates of doing those kinds of things. You know, of course, it's not that folks thought that universities were bad. It was just the question of who pays for it, the, the local area, the, the region, the state, or the national government. Right. You know, by that point, you started to see state schools, right, of, um, state, state higher education uh, institutions. And so most people, the attitude was is that was something better left to the states to do. Right. And, you know, that was, that was Jefferson's approach. That's why we have UVA, because he— basically set that up. Yes. University of Georgia follows a similar model. And I think that was somewhat, maybe that, I wouldn't call it entrenched. Um, and, you know, when he's making arguments for that in 1825, but I think the framework is there for replicating that. The next big evolution of that, of course, is land-grant institutions, which starts during the Civil War. You talked about, as, as president, both he and his father not being terribly, maybe not politically savvy is not the word, but politically uncaring. It seemed, it seemed almost like, I know John Adams almost considered if, if the popular opinion was in favor of something, it was probably wrong and he should be against it. Was his son as bad as all that? He might have been worse. In, in the context of the 1820s, he was, I would call him obstinate when it came to reading popular sentiment. Now, this is, I think, one of the reasons why his legacy is what it is post-presidency when he serves in the House. He, he was a man of principle, and he stuck to that principle no matter what. 
And uh, when you're running for re-election, that's probably not a good strategy. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Let's talk about his efforts to be re-elected and what the incredibly well-educated, experienced man from Massachusetts came up against with, well, let's just say Andrew Jackson. You know the history uh, of, of how he became president in the first place, right? And that led to great controversy because there was the, the essentially, uh, the decision had to be thrown to the House uh, because no one had won the majority. And um, Henry Clay, who was one of the candidates, threw his weight or support behind John Quincy Adams. And there were conditions to that that led to right, uh, the Jacksonians arguing that there was a corrupt bargain that had taken place because Clay was supposed to become uh, Adams' secretary of state, which everybody assumed was a path to the presidency. So, um, so you have that controversy. And so then uh, Jacksonian supporters basically spent uh, the, the next uh, four years uh, organizing and preparing to to make sure that didn't happen again. Now, I think John Quincy Adams is, and I wouldn't say that this is the first time this happens. The first one I would say would would have been the election of Jefferson. But Jackson taps into to this this um, populist movement, I guess we could call it. I mean, it, it changes politics. I would argue in the United States in an enduring way. And John Quincy Adams just he refused to do those kinds of things. He wouldn't campaign for himself. He didn't think it was dignified. To campaign. Um, very, very much the old school of, of president at that point. This is one of the things I think makes him a little bit sort of odd. Is he's a throwback. I mean, Washington sort of acted like that too. He didn't think that public service was something that you campaigned for. And John Quincy Adams was of that mind as well. And I don't know that Jackson necessarily was a, I wouldn't say that he was completely different in that regard. He is different. Um, he is willing to campaign, but the campaign got really dirty. Wait, a dirty presidential campaign? Yeah. Well, you know, the personal attacks, the mudslinging, you know. Again, not the first time that happens. Um, not the last. <laughs> certainly not the last. <laughs> In recent history, at least, when a president leaves office, whether it's after a successful run for a second term or an unsuccessful one, they tend to fade into the background. It's sort of tradition now that people, that people when they leave office are hands off, they keep their opinions to themselves. They have quote, achieved the highest office. There's nothing more for them to do. Mm -hmm. Not so John Quincy. Was it, was it seen at the time as though he was, a, was hanging around past his welcome or did that only go further to establish his reputation? I think it probably actually cemented his reputation uh, in a way. Um, he retires. He goes back to, to, to Massachusetts, to home, and, and he's officially retired. And, and then he's approached about being a candidate for the for House. He accepts uh, the nomination to do that uh, under certain conditions. He said, you know, he still refused to campaign for it. But, you know, nonetheless, the people of his district, they chose him and, and he was reelected, you know, eight more times. What did he do? You're talking about some of the things he did in the House. What are some of the, the highlights of things that he pushed through and or stopped in the house. Like I said, the, probably the, the one that you see most frequently is, is his opposition to pro-slavery legislation, I guess we'll call it. That's really becomes, the house is almost paralyzed, I guess, when it comes to the subject of slavery. Starting in 1836, it's so controversial at that point that James Hammond from South Carolina proposes that gag rule 
that basically tables any legislation that comes in. And, and part of what's driving that is all these anti-slavery petitions. They're getting hundreds of thousands of petitions, right? And by rule, those had to be read. And so the gag rule was to table that stuff so that it couldn't be read and it wouldn't be discussed. And so John Quincy Adams is, is key to getting that changed so that it can be, so that kinds of, so petitions and legislation can be, right, discussed. And so that's, that's usually the thing that you see referenced most often in his post-presidency career. So that's a great example of him using his morality to sort of guide him in terms of what the national discussion should be. If you would, go into a little bit about the, the Florida situation that, ha- that happened a little earlier, but how that was that a compromise? I mean, tell us about Florida and then tell us if that was a compromise of his personal feelings in favor of national unity or how did that work out? Yeah, so this is the one area where I think that John Quincy Adams is completely underrated, misunderstood, and not appreciated as much as he should be. John Quincy Adams, in my opinion, was probably one of the most ambitious nationalists of the 19th century, and it starts with Florida. Now, he's not alone. A lot of people don't know this. Is you know, Even under Jefferson's administration, they were looking at how could they get hold of Florida, literally projecting U.S., a U.S. presence into the Caribbean. And so Madison actually secretly authorized um, George Matthews, a guy from Georgia, a retired military officer, to invade Florida. Uh, and they were, their targets are Amelia Island, Fernandina, that area, uh, just across the St. Mary's River. And, uh, of course, when Matthews gets caught, and, of course, uh, he's disavowed. And so that's sort of the, that's the, the context, the pretext, if you will. Um, and so into that then comes John Quincy Adams, the Secretary of State. The, the thing that I find most fascinating about how he handled this is it's part of uh, the, sort of the national agenda is to shore up U.S. boundaries east of the Mississippi. So that's, that's a key goal that the Monroe administration wants. And so that's, you know, we're talking about the northern border with Canada, but then also what does it look like in the south? Because Florida is still controlled by Spain. So they desperately want to get control of it. John Quincy Adams goes through a very long negotiation with Spanish minister um, Deonis, Luis de Aonis. And the, the thing that I find most interesting is the argument he makes is that uh, Spain's inability to prevent piracy uh, that's operating from east and west Florida as well as uh, Galveston in Texas. John Quincy Adams demands that uh, the Spanish do something about this. And if they don't, the U.S. will take action. And they did. And if you know the history well, you know that once we get into the War of 1812, uh, Jackson will invade Florida. And, um, and they come back again, right, after the war. Jackson wants Florida bad. <laughs> they, they do. But, but I, I don't think that... Uh, I think John Quincy Adams wants it more. There's great debate. Now, take this with a grain of salt. This is based on John Quincy Adams' diaries, what I'm referring to here. You know, that was a habit that he picked up while he was, when he went with his father, actually, during the revolutionary period to Europe, he, he took to journaling, right, recording what, what was happening. And he, he wrote every day. But so he would write about these discussions that take place in the cabinet with Monroe, uh, about, you know, how aggressive they should be and whether or not. And, and so you have John Calhoun, who's like, we should not just Florida, we should get Cuba too. <laughs> and uh, it's one of the best lines that John Quincy Adams provides. He's like, you know, it's sort of like calm down, right? 
we don't need to be that aggressive. This is likely to lead to war with Britain if we try to go that far. Slow down. We're going to get this because everybody knows that when we talk about the U.S., it will be synonymous with the Americas. Very important, the Americas, right? And that we should not um, try to hide that ambition, right? Because it would just make us look hypocritical. It's one step at a time. And so Adams is, is angling to get hold of Florida, but he also wants part of Texas. And, but at the same time, he's also negotiating with the British to shore up uh, that chunk that becomes Wisconsin and Minnesota, the boundary there. So taking what was agreed upon on the eastern side of the Great Lakes, and he wants to extend that just a little bit past the on the western side of the Great Lake. So he's he's working both ends to try to shore up the U.S. position. Oh, that's part of the genius. Most folks don't realize this is an incredibly interesting time. Like you say, it's a very nationalist period. It's a very expansionist period. And I, I remember thinking, well, asking the question, why did we want Florida? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. actually, what's, what's the answer? And I remember what I did was I just looked at a map. And I kind of squinted because when we look at the map of the U.S. now, we just see the whole U.S. and we don't think about it in terms of, you know, areas of control and everything. But if you look at, your eye tends to drift east towards the Atlantic Ocean. But if you look south and you look at the Gulf, that is an incredibly important area in terms of ports and trade and control of the Mississippi and things like that. And so they have to, that's why they want Galveston too, right? It's that entire arc of the Gulf. When you don't have it, it's a big deal. We don't think about it now because we've got it. Right. And it's, I mean, this is a, this was something that was going on for 20 years. I mean, part of why you want those is these are where the, the major rivers of the U S or North America, right? Exit. We, we haven't gotten to where we have railroads yet. Right. Yeah. Everything's what, well, not everything. The most stuff is water-based. It is. And, and that's, that's why they want Galveston and, and so on. And, you know, Adams is also, uh, the, even the broader context of this is you have all the revolutions that begin during the, the Napoleonic Wars. And so the, the you know, Spanish colonies uh, that are in rebellion trying to get independence. And so the U.S. is trying to play sort of that they don't want to be too aggressive because they don't want to offend too much of Europe. John Quincy Adams is pretty confident in terms of how the British will react um, because uh, the, the two years before he became Secretary of State under Monroe, he was in, in Britain, right, as minister there. And so he's gotten to know sort of the, the foreign minister or the secretary there. I, I think that's also part of why he's able to negotiate that first convention of 1818 with the British that, that actually opens up some British colonies to, to trade with the United States. But he's got that. And so he's, Calhoun's like, let's go to war with the British. We'll beat them a third time. You know, Adam's like, oh, no, um, that's not necessary. And, and he was right. You know, he's calculating in, in that way. Even, even to, so far as to, he, he was pretty confident in how the British would respond to the Monroe Doctrine right, when it's announced. George Canning, right, does the finger wagging and all that kind of stuff, but, but the British weren't going to really, they weren't going to challenge militarily that doctrine. There was no reason for them to because they had the economic advantage in those Latin American countries anyway. Oh, we're running out of time, but, I, you know, I just want to, when, any, when anyone today thinks of John Quincy Adams, if they think of him at all, they probably think of that one image of him where he's sitting there with his legs crossed and is one of the most dour-looking human beings in history. That's what they think of. But in a nutshell, tell us why we need to think of him 
as more than that big picture? Uh, so big picture, um, I, I would say that you, you really have to think about um, John Quincy Adams in, in totality, right? If you limit his role to just the presidency, he, he is not significantly consequential. But when you look at the arc of his life and his importance to U.S. history, he consistently contributed to the development of the United States from 1792 until his death in 1848. In terms of advancing sort of, uh, I guess, in, a, in just a simple phrase, national expansion, he was a true nationalist, uh, and he refused to be sullied by the, the infighting and political, political infighting in particular. He stayed focused on what the United States could be, and it, it's almost prophetic when you look at what he did say, he said, it's just a matter of time that when you say U.S. and America, it will be synonymous, right? It will mean the same thing. And he was right about that. When, when you say America, everybody knows you mean the United States, even though there are other countries in the Americas. There's a whole other continent, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, that's part of it, you know, just a, a lifetime of contributing to the advancement of, of his country. That's a perfect explanation, I think. Dr. Van Sickle, I want to thank you for joining us, taking time to share some of your insights with me on John Quincy, the most dour American, but one of the most influential too. So go read more about him. Even if you have to start on the Wikipedia page, folks, it's something. Again, thanks, Dr. Van Sickle. Uh, you're welcome. And that's all we have time for, folks. Hope you keep tuning in to Then Again at the Northeast Georgia History Center. And until you hear or see us next time, Stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. We also hope you'll join us for our free weekly live stream programs on Facebook Live and YouTube Live every week at 2 p.m. Eastern. Just search for the Northeast Georgia History Center and we'll pop right up. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Our next members live stream is a virtual tour of the 18th century White Path Cabin here at the History Center. Digital memberships are as low as $3 a month or $35 a year, and you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages, again, at www.negahc.org. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.